Greetings and welcome to another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm your host, Brian Reardon. With me is Betsy Taylor, the editor of the award-winning journal Health Progress. Hello, Betsy. Hello, Brian. Here we are in November of 2021. We've been, uh, a lot of the episodes of late have been around COVID. Uh, This time we're going to do something a little different. We're going to try to shine a light on a topic that uh, we find to be very important and somewhat misunderstood, not only among Catholic healthcare workers, but around among healthcare workers and clinicians around the country. And that is the issue of palliative care. So in this episode, we've got a couple of guests that we hope are going to provide a little more uh, clarity, understanding, and hopefully demystify a little bit of palliative care. And I know that that's something that we've covered a lot in health progress uh, over the years. We have, and um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I think uh, there's there's uh, aspects of palliative care that we're hoping both our guests can uh, can clarify for us. So with that, let me introduce our two guests. Uh, first, we have Dr. Glenn Komatsu. He's the Regional Chief Medical Officer of Hospice and Palliative Care for Providence St. Joseph Health in the Southern California region. Hello, Glenn. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brian and Betsy. And we also have with us our colleague, Denise Hess. She is CHA's Director of Supportive Care. Denise, good to hear from you. Great to be here today. Hi to you and Betsy. And thanks, Glenn. It's always a pleasure to uh, get to talk to people about palliative care with you. Yeah, great to hear your voice, Denise. So, uh, Betsy, I think this topic is one that, um, as we mentioned, a little bit of confusion here. Yeah, it seems like when the topic of palliative care comes up, Many people, including some healthcare professionals, uh, associate it with hospice care. Glenn and Denise, can you provide a baseline understanding for us of the difference between palliative care and hospice? Sure, I'll take that. Um, it really, the two are conflated. Um, the easiest way to answer it is that hospice is palliative care in the last six months of life. But the broader um, field of palliative care addresses a person with a serious illness or chronic illness or terminal illness any time after the time of diagnosis. And even it can be for patients that are going to get better, that are going to be cured of their illness. And so describe what a, what a, a typical uh, patient would would have, like what conditions they might have. Um, I think they're of any age, too. It's not just people who are towards the end of their life. Can you, can you kind of give us a, an example of a, a, a generic patient profile if someone came to your office or you had a physician who referred somebody? What would that look like? Thanks, Brian, for that question, because that is also misunderstood. So it's a, it's a patient who's struggling, um, basically struggling uh, from pain, not just physical pain, but emotional pain, psychological pain, spiritual pain, existential pain and who's suffering. Uh, Maybe they're trying to adjust to having a chronic illness. Maybe it's a condition of chronic pain that, um, but they're going to live for years or decades. Um, Or maybe it's a serious illness that could be life-threatening. And Denise, from your perspective, um, I know you've got a lot of background in promoting palliative care with the first with the Supportive Care Coalition, uh, prior to that, I think with Providence and and now with CHA. there's a spiritual component to it as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. To Glenn's point, so patients who are struggling because they're figuring out how to live with a new diagnosis of a serious illness, many times that struggle includes brand new spiritual and religious 
questions, uh, spiritual and religious pain. And one of the beauties of a palliative care interdisciplinary team is that with all members of the team, uh, physicians, nurses, chaplains, social workers, the all types of pain can be addressed and treated, including spiritual pain. So a palliative care chaplain can assist that person, support the person with the serious illness and also their loved ones with navigating, negotiating, kind of figuring out um, what their relationship is to the transcendent in light of this new situation. As the editor of Health Progress, um, we've had some coverage where uh, patients describe receiving a diagnosis of serious illness and how, in some cases, their mind can sort of go blank. You know, it's, it can be very hard to hear about a serious um, or a chronic illness. And so how do you introduce the topic of palliative care? Do you, um, do you bring that up right after diagnosis? And do patients generally know what it is, or do you have to sort of give them a quick education? It's really a very individual journey that each person goes through. And so some people reach out for help right away. Some people want more time to process um, when we approach patients, it's always with the theme of how can we be helpful? And sometimes they're overwhelmed and I just really can't, uh, can't conceive of talking to another doctor, another team. So can we please hold off, which is fine. And some patients really need support right from the very beginning. Um, and so we we join at the very beginning. So it, timing is really important, and it's based on the patient and family's um, sort of what they think if the when they think the time is right. And to Glenn's point, I think the uh, one of the adages around palliative care is as a scalpel is to a surgeon, communication skills are to a palliative care team, and I. I think it's there are not many places in healthcare today where the one of the main and foremost priorities of the healthcare caregiver is listening. And what Glenn just described so well is that there isn't really a singular approach to how to introduce or or welcome a patient into the palliative care support system. Um, but listening comes first and finding out what they need and where they're feeling the gap in their care and help them close those gaps. And how do patients even know about palliative care? I mean, it, it just seems like, they, would they even know to even ask? Well, Denise and I have really devoted our careers to really uh, promoting and promulgating um, palliative care, both inside and outside of healthcare. And it is becoming um, talked about more, I think, in the public. I think podcasts like this go a long way to helping raise awareness, but it is, it has been a challenge. Mm -hmm. What I hear from on kind of both sides of the equation. So the person with serious illness, um, once they do hear, oh, palliative care might be available. Um, they're often, even if they're aware of it, they're hesitant to ask their physician or nurse for it because they worry they're going to communicate to their caregiver that somehow they're giving up, um, somehow they really don't want all the best treatments available. They're just kind of 
wanting to take kind of a dialed down approach to their care. And then on the other side, uh, physicians I've talked to and, and nurses and caregivers of all kinds are often, even if they know palliative care support, are hesitant to bring it up to the patient because they're worried that the patient will think that the caregiver, the clinician, is giving up on them or saying their case is hopeful or hopeless or they're never going to get better. And so often what we hear on, on both ends of the equation from patients and from clinicians is, oh, it's not time for that yet, or it's too soon to ask for palliative care or to even just get to know a palliative care team. And like Glenn described earlier, find out, would this be helpful for you or not? Um, so lots of people miss out from lack of knowledge, um, but also from that kind of hesitancy about some of the stigma around um, asking for that kind of support. Yeah, and I've, I, Denise, you're spot on because I actually had a, a personal experience with that very thing. So again, having the benefit of knowing just a little bit about palliative care and being in uh, Catholic healthcare for the past 18 years, uh, when my mom was towards the end of her life, she had um, both a heart condition and cancer. So she had, you know, two things going on. Um, and I remember she was you know, admitted to the hospital multiple times, uh, spent a lot of time in there. And she had the benefit, I thought, of uh, what I perceived as being a good thing, and that was having a hospitalist taking care of her, or a team of hospitalists. So she was, and I won't get into the details of what she was struggling with, but it got obviously a lot of pain and just a lot of complications and issues that came up. So I, I took the hospitalist aside and I said, hey, you know, I really think my mom could benefit from a palliative care consult. And the hospitalist looked at me and he said, oh, okay, so you're ready for hospice. Mm-hmm. And that just blew me away. And I said, no, 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 no. She's not ready for hospice. I know that. And she, I think from this point on in the conversation, she lived for another nine months or so and, and actually had some, you know, uh, a lot of productive living left to do. And so that really just, and, I, and I've heard other stories too from colleagues who have gone into, you know, various uh, hospital settings and asked for that. And it's just automatically, like we said at the top of the, the conversation, it just immediately equates to, okay, you're giving up and you're ready. So... Again, what what advice would you give to that hospitalist if if you were you know, or what would advice would you give to somebody like me who's you know advocating on behalf of a loved one? I would say be firm and uh, calm and insistent that no, I don't think that's what palliative care is, um, and I would like that support for my mom, but we're not ready for hospice. You know, we just want more support and to see if maybe there's something more that we can provide my mother to make her more comfortable and have the best quality of life that she can have for as long as possible. Um, I'm going to ask, too, about it's interesting to me how quickly this can turn from a topic of medicine to a to a personal topic, because, you know, so many of us have been through this. And um, it can be, of course, very personal um, dealing with someone with a serious illness or at end of life. Uh, and one thing that I'm wondering about is when you as a family member don't know all the medicine and people are talking about things like advanced care planning and, you know, what do you want for yourself or talking to a family member about what do they want, it can be really hard to know what choices to make because you sort of don't know what you're sending yourself down on the decision tree, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about do people have to be better educated about the medicine to make some of these choices? Or should they just be giving sort of general guidelines for 
here's what I think I want. Uh, I may change my mind, you know, when I'm actually in this situation. H- how does how does a person or how does a family talk about palliative care and when someone might want an intervention and what sort of intervention they might want when they don't entirely know the ins and outs of it? You know, that's a great question, Betsy. And I'll, I'll give you my view. I think Glenn might have good stuff to add. Coming at this as uh, first working as a palliative care chaplain, so not with a medical background. And I, my personal view is I don't think there is a way for someone who hasn't gone to medical school to possibly be able to consider and know all of the points on the decision tree that may or may not come up in advanced care planning. So what I encourage family members to do is to have multiple ongoing open conversations about their values, about their beliefs, about what makes their life joy-filled and meaningful. And then that provides the family members and friends who might down the road end up being in the position of making decisions on behalf of their loved one, a much more helpful rubric or template to go by than, oh, they said they would never want to be kept alive by machines. That's a helpful statement, but it really might not always apply. (laughs) Um, And so instead, if you know their values were that what made life most joy-filled for them was being able to see and talk to their grandkids and look at photos and be able to reminisce. And for some, it's being able to eat food um, through their mouth and taste it. For others, it's, you know, not being uh, tied to having to spend a lot of their time in doctor's offices receiving treatment. They want most of their time to be outside of medical settings. So those, those types of values and belief discussions are often more helpful than trying to figure out all the medicine. But Glenn, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, no, it's Denise is, is spot on with her comments. But one of the things that, one of the mistakes that we doctors make routinely is we think if we present the medical information and the medical evidence that people already have sort of a developed um, sort of uh, judgment about what is right and not right, what's best and not best for their loved ones, that they have a value system that's already developed for that kind of um, judgment uh, and processing. And they don't. They've never been through this before. They've never lost a mother before. They've never lost a child before. This is all new and overwhelming for them. So we have to have the patience and the kindness and the compassion to explain to them as best we can in language they can understand what's going on, and then take the time to really listen to them as they process that information and sort of give them ideas about how to process the information. Give them some help in forming a value system whereby they can use that to then make decisions. Um, Also understanding that 
medical decision-making is a process and takes time. And as the patient's condition changes, the circumstances change, the decisions may change. So being patient with the process and really focusing on developing a relationship of trust and kindness with patients and families is is key to the work we do in palliative care. Now that that sounds yeah. As you were talking, oh, sorry, Brian. No, go ahead, Denise. No, please. I just as Glenn was talking, I just had um, you know, having spent many many hours um, with patients and watching Glenn work with patients and family members. You know, one of the things that all palliative care teams, but specifically my experience with Glenn, does so well is we forget how fragmented the medical system is. So just imagine, as many of us can remember, uh, family members in the ICU. And what happens is, is one specialist walks in and says, wow, things are looking so much better today. Well, they're really just talking about the kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, another specialist walks in and says, uh, things are about the same, maybe a little worse. They're just talking about the lungs. and the family is on a roller coaster ride of emotions, of course, with each, uh, you know, arrival of each specialist. What palliative care teams do so well is they bring it all together and talk about the whole person. Um, and again, not just their isolated bodily organs, but the entire person. And from a medical point of view, no doubt, but also from the point of view of what kinds of um, decisions might be ahead for the family and what those decisions will mean for the kind of life that their loved one will have as the disease unfolds. And there, unfortunately, for better or for worse, there, there are very few other folks in medicine who know how to bring it all together like that for families. And it's just, it's so valuable to get that big picture view. And listening to both of you, yeah, it, it just seems like it's a special skill set um, that maybe is needed. But I, I'm curious, Glenn, I've actually got kind of a two-part question for you is, one, why did you choose to be uh, a palliative care specialist? And, and two, was there something in med school that, that maybe attracted you to that? And, and maybe this is a three-part question, sorry, but <laughs> what, what do they, uh, you know, what do med schools do as far as uh, how much how much do our med students and residents actually uh, learn or how much are they exposed to palliative care, uh, the concept, and maybe even palliative care consults and teams? Unfortunately, Brian, the exposure from med students, uh, and I know this firsthand because my daughter just graduated from med school last year. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But um, there is uh, there are so many demands on med students' times, like every department feels like their specialty is really important, which is completely true, that there's only so much time in the calendar, uh, you know, so much time in four years that you can pack into medical education. So the answer to your question is there's not a lot of time for palliative care, especially mandatory time uh, in most medical schools. There are some exceptions, but very few. The second is that Palliative care did not exist when I was a med student or a resident Hmm. or even early in my career. It's a relatively recent specialty. It was only recognized by the American Board of Medical Specialties as an official specialty of medicine 
in 2006. Wow. To give you some idea. So I started life out as a pediatrician and then a neonatologist. And I practiced in a neonatal intensive care unit for 20 years. And what I became increasingly discouraged about with the practice of neonatology was the ethos of saving every baby, uh, saving smaller and smaller babies without regard to the pain and suffering Hmm. that we're putting the babies and the families through. Even when we knew that the outcome was not going to be good, that the baby was ultimately going to die. We kept treating until it became clear the baby was actively dying. And we never get parents, we never were honest with parents or gave them choices along the way. And that's why I left, I walked away from neonatology and went and did an adult palliative care fellowship in Boston in 2004 to 2005. I'm also wondering, Glenn, um, if it's something um, that that's maybe not easy to talk about, but when you work with slightly older children and their families, how do you have those discussions? Um, how do you explain uh, death to a child? It depends on the child's developmental age. Um, children do develop an understanding of death at an early age um, because they have pets that they see die. Uh, we... So it's, it's difficult. It's um, not easy work, but we have the help of um, social workers and chaplains who work with them, who have knowledge of play therapy, who play with children and children express themselves through play. And they talk, uh, they don't have the same vocabulary, obviously as adults, but they can express their um, fears and worries through their play. So we watch that. And also children are very savvy that have been chronically ill for some time. Even eight, nine, 10 year olds can really talk about their experience because they've seen, especially in the world of cancer, they've seen their friends and people that they were in treatment with uh, die or not show up to clinic anymore. And they, they're not, they don't have the same fears that adults do around death and dying necessarily. So I always try to talk to children directly, ask them, you know, you know, what do you know about what's going on? You know, and are there things, or do you have questions for me? And I encourage parents to listen to their children's voice, even though they're not adults, they still have strong feelings about what they would like done and or not done. They have frequently have strong feelings about, I don't want to go back to the hospital again. And I encourage parents to listen to that voice. But I will tell you, it's challenging work. And it takes a really committed team, which I'm fortunate to work with. And they take care of me. And I try to take care of them, as well as the children and families. So Denise, we've, we've talked about uh, patients and families. We've talked about the physician perspective. You've worked over your career, uh, particularly around the Supportive Care Coalition and now at CHA with various health systems. What are you hearing from healthcare leaders about, uh, A, their interest, desire to either start or expand palliative care teams? What are some of the other resource barriers? I mean, I think from this conversation and from what we know about palliative care, it makes 
you know, so much sense to have programs like that everywhere, but yet it doesn't seem like they're widely available. So what are you hearing from health systems that are maybe interested, but, um, you know, what's the resistance or, or what convinces them, yeah, we, we've got to put more uh, time, attention, and resources into this program? Mm, yeah. So what we hear is, well, the good news is, is that more and more systems recognize that having a palliative care program in place, still most often that will be based in an acute care hospital, but having a palliative care program in place leads not just the triple, but the quadruple aim. Um, costs are, are reduced because people don't need to rush to the emergency room or to the ICU for unnecessary treatments, treatments that they already can address um, out of the hospital with the support of a palliative care team. Um, there's better care coordination because their goals and values and beliefs and priorities about their care have been made clear in the medical record. And so they get the patients get the treatments they want and not the ones they don't want, which leads to happier patients and families, also known as caregiver or patient satisfaction. But then in addition, uh, and you see this especially in the ICU with ICU nurses, caregiver satisfaction increases so much because uh, there's a lot of moral distress for that nurses experience when they know they are treating a human being um, who, as Glenn just described in the case of a child, is actively dying, yet no one's honestly discussing that with the patient or their surrogate decision makers, loved ones. So, so that's the good news. It, it's it's one of those rare cases in healthcare where what's doing what's right for everyone also reduces costs. The barriers are are tricky because there are definitely financial barriers. Um, there isn't, unlike hospice, there isn't a reimbursement model for palliative care teams yet. And so it is uh, unevenly available across the United States, you know, bigger hospitals, um, the latest AHA data show that still smaller hospitals are just less likely to have a palliative care program. Bigger hospitals are much more likely, about 90% of bigger hospitals have palliative care. And, and so it's, they don't have the financial resources to staff an in-house team. But as Glenn mentioned earlier, and as his daughter just experienced um, going through medical school, there is still a great shortage of palliative care clinicians. So, so even hospitals that really want to have a program, uh, if they're smaller, if they're rural, they might have trouble recruiting and retaining palliative care program staff. So many barriers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would imagine that's going to be even more of a, a barrier going forward because of all the post-COVID shortages that we've been hearing about. Um, but no, your, your point about exactly. um, yeah. the, the palliative care offering that is actually, I hadn't thought of that, is it, it's helpful to the caregivers because they have, again, a, a group of colleagues that can support the patients that they care so much about. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got a couple minutes left. Um, Betsy, I'm going to let you have the final question and let each of you just kind of, again, I think the main question, um, and I don't, I'll let Betsy ask it, but I, I think, you know, 
what do we need to do to get this more, the palliative care more widely accepted? And I don't know, Betsy, if you want to add to that. I will. I think I can add to that question. <laughs> um, Denise, uh, you and I have been talking about what different healthcare systems have been doing. And uh, as you know, uh, Health Progress has stories coming up from Peace Health and from Ascension about extending their medical services as it relates to palliative care. Um, I know in some cases, healthcare systems are doing more training for their primary care physicians on palliative care. Um, with sort of the aging of the population and technological advances, um, where where do we think palliative care is heading? Yeah, great question. So you're right. I, I see it kind of as a multi-pronged strategy. So right, CHA, we're all about um, supporting and amplifying the good work being done by our system. The other piece of this is educating and raising public awareness, kind of back to what we talked about earlier. Once there've been some really good market kind of focus group studies done on people who don't know anything about palliative care, and then palliative care is described to them, and it's upwards of 90% say, oh, I would absolutely want that. So one of the challenges before us is how do we get the word out about what palliative care is and isn't, and and as Glenn said, this podcast is helpful, and raise public awareness so that people know to ask for it, to ask again, to insist on it, and then it will put some helpful pressure on systems who maybe haven't, or hospitals who haven't had a fully staffed program or haven't been um, able to make that happen. Um, kind of creating that that consumer demand, I think, is a key part of getting palliative care out there. That's that's a lot how the hospice movement grew. Um, at the beginning, people were like, "No, thank you. That sounds terrible and sad, and lots of misconceptions around hospice." But as people experienced and shared their experience by word of mouth about what a different quality of end of life they had with their loved ones, uh, then People are asking for it. Uh, give, I need to get hospice. How do I? How do I get it? And where is it? So I, I think the same thing is the next frontier for palliative care. And Glenn, any final words? This is a the big question, and it really is uh, a cultural question. Our society in this country is not accepting of death and dying as part of living, even though intellectually we know that. Emotionally, psychologically, we we want to avoid the topic at all costs. And so that kind of cultural attitude extends from the general public into healthcare, which is why we spend so much money on non-beneficial care at the end of life that they don't do in other countries like Europe, like Scandinavia. And they have much better outcomes, much better. Uh, patient satisfaction um, scores than we do, and they spend a fraction of what we do. So not to end on a pessimistic note, but I think we need to keep um, continuing to uh, do our best to raise awareness, to move the needle into uh, a more humanistic approach, as Denise said, to whole person care. Um, And we need to really follow our missions as Catholic organizations. One of the things that really struck me and attracted me to working with Providence is 
their mission to preferentially care for the poor and the vulnerable, the sick and the dying. And we need to follow that mission and make it come to life. Yeah, and I think Providence also has it's it's ease ease my way. There was a yep, uh, yep, and that's really what what palliative care, I, I to me, is all about. It's easing the way. So absolutely, absolutely, know me, care for me, ease my way. There you go, Dr. Glenn Kamatsu, Regional Chief Medical Officer of Hospice and Palliative Care for Providence in the Southern California region, and Denise Hess. Uh, you're our great colleague. Uh, you're our director of supportive care. What a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you both of you for your time uh, in having this really important discussion. Wonderful talking with both of you, and thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much, uh, Brian and Betsy. Yeah, thank you. And that is another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. Again, for Betsy Taylor, I'm Brian Reardon, and until next time, we'll talk to you. Mm-hmm.